the cotton will destroy the masjid and masjid al-haram he brings it and destroys it down in the narrations it states that he attacks it and takes an axe to destroy it and it says that he rebuilds the kaaba in the place that it was supposed to be in so that means that the kaaba itself that the muslims are are making pilgrimage to is not even the correct kaaba اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد الهم المهدينا وسلم تسليما السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته my dear brother and companion Muhammad Hussam وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله وبركاته my master good to have you here thank you it's great to be here alhamdulillah so uh, today we want to talk about uh, an important topic uh, and uh, really it has to do with the answer to the question that we see popping up a lot uh, in the different videos uh, where people are asking, okay, why doesn't the Mahdi uh, go ahead and go to Palestine right now? Why doesn't he go free Palestine, you know, and uh, fight against the occupation or fight against the uh, Jews? Uh, why doesn't he free uh, Palestine from Israel? And uh, the answer to that question is because uh, according to the divine plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and according to the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, uh, this is not what the Mahdi does initially. Actually, uh, what the Mahdi does initially after the time period of coming out and calling the people towards the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and establishing the proof upon them, as did every single other prophet and messenger and vicegerent uh, that has ever come to the earth. And even the Quran says that God does not bring down a punishment upon a people until he sends forward a warner. And so the Mahdi, he has to come forward. The Qa'im has to come forward. He has to establish the proof on the people. He has to prove to them beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the person whom it is obligatory to follow in this day and age and and call them uh, towards the banner uh, of the Mahdi of the family of Muhammad and then after that he has to begin to fight the occupation forces the occupying forces that are occupying the the the, the Muslim lands um, and uh, the entire uh, Arab world at that point is under occupation. And, uh, and this is clear from the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad. And they state that the Qa'im, the Mahdi, suffers at the hands of the Muslims uh, worse than the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu had suffered at the dawn of Islam. Why? Because the narration says that when the Prophet Muhammad was sent forward, the people were worshipping sticks and stones. But when the Qa'im comes, when the Mahdi comes, 
and the people are all using the Quran as a proof against him. They're arguing uh, by means of Islam and their own interpretations and understandings against him to make him uh, look to be a liar and thus they're confusing uh, the masses. Uh, because these people are claiming to be Muslims and the Mahdi is claiming to be Muslims. These people are claiming to have the real Islam and the Mahdi is claiming to have the real Islam. When we look closely at the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, um, when they speak about the dangers and the threats that are facing the Muslim nation, that which the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is uh, making dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect the Muslims from, we don't really find narrations uh, where the Prophet is saying, Ya Allah, please uh, save my ummah uh, from the Jews or please uh, protect them from the uh, fitna of the, of the Jews or warning the Muslims, uh, telling them, I'm afraid for you from the uh, fitna of the Jews. This doesn't really ever happen. Uh, but what does happen is that the Prophet uh, you know, is worried over his ummah from the fitna of the Antichrist, the Dajjal, you know, and he says that there's an even greater fitna than the Dajjal that he's worried about his nation from. And he says that that is the non-working scholars. That the non-working scholars, the Ahl-Bayt say, are more dangerous on the Muslim nation than the fitna of the Dajjal and more dangerous upon our Shia than the armies of Yazid son of Muawiyah. And the armies of Yazid son of Muawiyah sought to completely behead and eliminate any trace of the people of the house and their followers. And thus the non-working scholars also, their mission in the end times and what they actually work towards is towards the elimination of all of Islam. Uh, the, even though they're speaking in the name of Islam, it's a different Islam. And we're going to come to prove that here in a moment. And they seek to not leave. That's as if that's their only mission that they were sent for. To not leave a single member or household that has a member in it that is a follower or a supporter of the Qa'im, the Mahdi, the truth. The Prophet Muhammad was clear that in the end times, nothing would remain from Islam except for its name. And nothing would remain from the Qur'an except for its calligraphy, its writing. And then he describes the Muslims at that time as calling themselves Muslims, but being the furthest thing away from it. Their masjids in that time would have there would be beautiful masjids that have all kinds of ornaments and, and decor, the Prophet Muhammad said, but yet it would be empty of any sort of guidance. And then the Prophet says, in those days, their scholars and their jurisprudence are the most evil of creation underneath the sky. 
from them came the fitna, and to them it must return. And indeed, when we look at what's taking place in the Muslim world today, we find that while the Muslims are living in a state of extreme poverty, most of the Muslim countries, and even if you combine all of them together, the majority of Muslims are suffering and they don't have access to healthcare, basic healthcare. They don't have access to a decent job where their human rights are protected. They struggle their entire life to make a living so that they just may remain alive and feed their family if they were even lucky enough to have enough money to put down on an apartment or a house. Most of them can't even afford an apartment or house. Most of them live on, with, their, with their family members until they're into their 30s or 40s. The, Muslim, the Muslims in the Muslim nations don't have access to any sort of decent education. All of the public schools are a scam and a sham. They tell the, 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 the public schools will wait until the time where the examinations are taking place and then uh, they will go in there and they will give the students the answers so that they can continue to get government funding. The teachers don't teach in the public schools because they're all running side businesses whereby because their salaries are so so low in the schools so they don't do a decent job and what they do is they end up um, giving private lessons on the side to those same students that are sitting in their classrooms and that's where they make the majority of the money and you know that yes everybody was taking private lessons yes. uh, in Egypt and in the in most of the schools that are in the the uh, Middle East they abuse the children, they hit them, they strike them. And the kids uh, come out morally and mentally demented. The Muslim countries now, if you drive through them, uh, you will find that their streets are full of trash. Nobody has respect for the country that they're living in. Nobody has love for it. The armed forces are basically armies that are formed by the government of people that hate their country and are forced to join uh, by threat of prison because it's mandatory that each and every individual uh, serves. The, the rich people, though, that can pay, they get to pay and, and avoid service. Mm. There are no countries around the world that its population are is attempting to flee, even if it costs them their own life by means of illegal immigration than the Muslim countries. Yes. Most of the immigrants around the world are Muslims. That's a fact. Yes. So there's no love for the country. There's no loyalty. There's nothing. And there's 
And there's no freedom of religion. And there's no freedom of anything. There's no political freedoms. There's nothing. True. And the entire time, while you find all of these scenes of oppression taking place, as you see the little children working on the roads, washing cars, selling napkins in order to, uh, um, you know, to feed their, their families, or children that have been stolen from their family members or kidnapped and then used by mafias on the street to work as beggars. And then in the end of the day, they have to uh, give their money to the... Um, you know, to their to their their gang leader. As prostitution runs rampant in Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and Morocco and other Arabs from rich countries like the Gulf come into these countries and abuse and use their daughters and their women. The non-working scholars don't say a word. They're silent. True. And all of them are appointed by Wizarat al-Awf that is formed by the government that at the head of the government is the tyrant who's in power at that particular um, country. Yes. Just as it is important to these tyrants to have their police force or to have their army that protects their institutions it is almost more important for these tyrants that they have this department that they have employed in it all of these imams, these non-working scholars and jurisprudence. And if you go to one of these countries and you enter into a masjid on a Friday and the, you, you hear the speech that they are reading and then you go out midway and you go to a different masjid halfway across the country, lo and behold, they are reading and reciting the exact same topic. True. So all of the speeches on Friday are centralized. And thus, the scholars from the different masjids, and they have thousands of them all over these countries, whereby the populations go to seek guidance, they act as a drug, a, a depressant, um, something which uh, basically causes the populations to remain in a state of sedation and deep sleep. They don't issue fatwas to rise up against the oppression. Rather, they issue fatwas that you should never go out against the ruler or against the leader, and that you have to be patient. And they teach the populations that they should um, focus their, their hopes on a world that's yet to come, the hereafter, and don't worry about this physical world. Yes. And yet they tolerate the fact that the, there, there are these, this elite population in the country that surrounds the tyrant, this upper class, and the tyrant himself, who are living life lavishly and using and abusing the rest of the population. Yes. 
they ignore the fact that the Prophet Muhammad said, if you see the king or the ruler at the door of the scholar of religion, then say yes to the scholar of religion and say yes to the ruler. But if you see the scholar of religion at the door of the king or the ruler of the country, then refuse the scholar and refuse the ruler. And that's all that we see in this day and age. Our scholars whom are at the feet of the rulers and controlled by them. The hadiths and the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, and even Ahmed al-Hassan al-Yamani, he has this beautiful quote that um, still, you know, it was one of the, the, the things that, that attracted most of those who uh, pledged allegiance to him and followed this path. It was like uh, he said it and it struck a chord. It was as if it shook the depths of the souls of all those who heard it. He says to them in one of his speeches, he says, Have you asked Muhammad and the family of Muhammad about the scholars of the end times before you ask the scholars of the end times about Muhammad and the family of Muhammad? Because indeed, if we go to the scholars of the end times, they tell us everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. They praise companions and people uh, that lived 1400 years ago and have absolutely no relevance today. And they forget and brush over and ignore all of the suffering and the oppression that's taking place today. The same suffering and oppression that if those companions that they were praising, like Abu Dar or Salman or Al-Maqdad, were living in this day and age, they would have, without a shadow of a doubt, focused all of their time and their effort to speak out against the tyrant in this day and age as they did before. Yes. The scholars of the end times today, they have succeeded in helping the tyrants of the countries to establish a multi-billion dollar industry which is called uh, the religious entertainment and tourism interest industry. And this religious entertainment industry is the, the selling of religious props and the participation in religious vacations and the generation of money through that. They've turned the pilgrimage into Mecca from one where a person is supposed to strip himself from all the, the, the you know, types of, 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 from all of dunya, yes. all of the world. They're supposed to strip themselves from that. They're supposed to shave their heads. They're supposed to minimize their garments to the very basic 
you know, shroud of their coffin and wear it on their back and to go down to the house of God and present themselves whereby they become indistinguishable from every other human being who is there. Equality is supposed to be the scene that we see in the pilgrimage whereby everybody stands in front of God on the, on the day of judgment and circumambulates the Kaaba. And you can't tell who's poor and who's rich. You can't tell what country this person came from or what country that person came from. All other things besides us having that one common thing and that is being human beings that are Muslim in front of God is supposed to disappear. And yet what they did is these scholars have aided the tyrants in building structures at the Kaaba that are much higher like that tower of El Saud with the two horns at the top that peers down like the tower of Sauron on the Kaaba from above and looks down on it. Yes. Five-star hotels have been built all around Mecca and Medina that allow people who pay more money to enjoy in air-conditioned, five-star uh, vacation getaway where they can go to God but peer down on the Kaaba from above and get a better view of the pilgrims as they're going around. McDonald's and KFC and every other restaurant that you can imagine has made ways into the the holiest of holy lands for the Muslims. People take selfies and they brag about their pilgrimage that they have made. And if you look in the Shia world, it's not much better, if not worse. You have over there pictures and posters of the Al-Bayt being sold. Total advantage is being taken of the misery and the suffering and the martyrdom of Hussein and his family. The scholars stand by happily as they see the Muslims self-mutilate their own bodies, cutting their foreheads and cutting the foreheads of their children, spilling their own blood on the floors of Karbala and Najaf, all in the name of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad. They would rather see the Muslims spill their own blood than spill the blood of the tyrant oppressors whom are ruling over them. They happily stand by and watch and praise rituals that are a total bid'ah, and have nothing to do with Islam. They do what is worse than what the Israelis are doing. If they consider that Israel is destroying the bodies of the Palestinians, and murdering them, well, these non-working scholars are destroying their minds and poisoning them and killing their souls. They stand by and they watch 
adult human beings lay down on the ground and wiggle themselves to the mausoleum of Imam al-Hussein as if they were worms and not even human beings. From the beating of chests to the squirming like worms on insects on the ground to the bathing in mud. The non-working scholars have reduced the Muslims and made them akin to swine that bathe in mud or insects that crawl on the ground or monkeys that beat their chests and they're convinced, Muhammad, that by these deeds they're drawing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these are the people, and this is the state that Imam al-Sadiq was speaking about when he wandered over the musukh of this nation. And when the Prophet Muhammad and his family cursed and warned the non-working scholars of this day and age. And so the Qa'im, he arrives on the scene when all of that is taking place. Yes. And so the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad say that the very first enemies that he has are those scholars. And in particular, an incident is pointed out whereby he arrives and there's an army of people, of scholars, 16,000 of them, that oppose him. 16,000 of them and their followers. They say, go back, O son of Fatima. We have no need for you here. They don't want the Mahdi. And even the, the, the country of Iran that has been responsible for turning Iraq into what it is today and that claims that it is the country of Imam al-Mahdi, if it was the country of Imam al-Mahdi and it was filled with his followers, then Imam al-Mahdi would have appeared. He would have been ruling that country already. Because according to the narrations, Imam al-Mahdi only needs 313 followers and then he will appear. So that means that there's not even 313 believers in that country, true believers. This is a country that their scholars have written and have stated openly that the state of the faqih, they call Iran the state of the jurisprudent. It's the country that the jurisprudent rules, the scholar rules. Why? Because the scholars are the inheritors of the prophets and the messengers, they say. And so that means us, the scholars. And then they say that the purpose why Imam al-Mahdi is coming is to establish a divine just state. And because we already have that Islamic state, which is the state of the scholars, if a person has to choose between saving the state or Imam al-Mahdi, then you choose the state. And even if Imam al-Mahdi became an enemy of the state of the scholars, then you kill Imam al-Mahdi. And by these very words and this very confession and admission 
they revealed that they have nothing to do with Muhammad and the family of Muhammad and that they're enemies of the Mahdi and that they only use his name to establish and centralize power. Absolutely. And they twist and abuse religion in order to control the masses because there are so many good people out there that are confused and they don't they would dare to rise against the tyrant but they would never dare to rise against god yes in iran their population is starving to death and yet they have scholars on salaries all across iran there's nothing more than white turbans and black turbans that you see all over the place. Instead of having factories that produce cars or produce uh, clothing or produce or farm anything, they have scholars that produce idiots and imbeciles and disbelievers and pigs and swine and apes. They have pushed the population so far away from Islam, the Prophet says that these scholars of the end times, and Jesus says in the Bible, in the New Testament, that the scholars, the Pharisees, and the rabbis, they push people so far away from religion and from God, that they make them more worthy of hellfire than themselves. Jesus says that they love to walk around in their outfit. They love to be praised and sit in the honored seats at weddings and events. The Prophet Muhammad said that the Muslim nation would follow in the footsteps of those who came before him the Christians and the Jews, so much so that if they were to follow a lizard into its hole, that the Muslims would do the same. And indeed, they have done the same. And the modern day rabbis and Pharisees that fought Jesus in his time are here today again, doing the same thing to the Muslims and fighting the vicegerent of God once again. They are idols that don't benefit or harm. People idolize them. And they wear the costume of Rasulullah in order to fool the population. And the narrations state that because of that, the Qa'im has to take an axe to them and destroy each and every one of these idols. And the narrations state that he slaughters 16,000, other narrations say 70,000 scholars between Nejaf and Karbala and in the region. And so we find in the narrations that the Qa'im has a mission that he must do and an enemy who he must focus on, who is the most dangerous of all enemies. And that is the non-working scholar because they represent the most power, powerful line 
of defense for the occupying forces, the tyrants that are living in that time, that are occupying and oppressing the Muslim population. That the real threat comes from them. And that Islam at that time is so far from true Islam that everything about it, for the most part, is wrong. 99% of all of Islam is wrong in that time. And for that reason, the narration state that the Mahdi brings back Islam again. He reinstates it. And you can't reinstate something unless it was lost. And he says the narration state that Islam started as something strange and it would return to something strange. So blessings for these strangers. Because those people who are living in the time of the Qa'im, they would not be able to recognize the Islam of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad. So it would see, seem just as strange as Islam did when it first appeared to those who were worshipping sticks and stones. Yes. The Qa'im in the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad does a lot of interesting things that were mentioned plainly in the narrations, but not talked about so much by the scholars. Something which is hidden. They don't want this stuff out. In the narrations, it states that the Qa'im will destroy the Masjid, Masjid al-Haram. He brings it and destroys it down. And also the masjid and the grave of Rasulullah In the narrations, it states that he attacks it and takes an axe to destroy it. And his companions flee from him because of a great storm that takes place. And then they run back to him after they realize that the storm is not the anger of God against the Mahdi. And it says that he rebuilds the Kaaba in the place that it was supposed to be in. So that means that the Kaaba itself, that the Muslims are, are making pilgrimage to, is not even the correct Kaaba. And when we look further into the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, and even narrations of him with his wives, we'll find that in, he speaks to his wives and he says that, one of his wives, and he says that, if he had the ability to, in his life, he would have brought down the Kaaba and reestablished it in its right place. So therefore, the Kaaba that they're visiting today is not the Kaaba that was built by Abraham. And here's a, a, a little fact for the viewers. Uh, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, when he came, they didn't just have one Kaaba. Uh, one cube. They had many cubes all over the region, uh, all over Arabia, and 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 extending all the way upwards. And every nomadic tribe, every tribe at the time, had its own Kaaba, whereby they kept in it their own idols. 
Yes. And so the Bani Omeya had their Kaaba, and the Bani Hashim had their Kaaba, and all of the tribes had their own Kaaba. The true Kaaba that Abraham built, the Kaaba of the Bani Hashim is not the Kaaba that the people are making pilgrimage to today. The Kaaba that the people are making pilgrimage today to is the Kaaba of the Bani Umayyah. Hmm. My God. And this is the Kaaba that the Qa'im will destroy. And this is the Kaaba that as it was filled back in the day with idols, in this day and age, you see the walking, talking idols walking around it, going inside of it, walking out of it. The idols of this day and age, those that wear the costume of the Prophet of Allah, those swines and apes that the Prophet saw in his dream jumping on his platform and speaking in his place, speaking on his member. Those whom are the children of the evil tree, the cursed tree in the Quran. In the narrations of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, it states that in the time, in the end times, the people will be fasting in other than the month of Ramadan and breaking fast in Ramadan, which is a clue that they lose track of the calendar. They lose track of the months. They lose track of where Ramadan is. And in one narration, when they went to kill Imam al-Hussein and when they went to fight against the household of the Prophet Muhammad a dua was made by the Ahl Bayt. May this Muslim nation never fast another Ramadan until the appearance of the Qa'an. And from that time forward, they lost track of the, of the holy month. It was lifted from them as the understanding of the Qur'an was lifted from them and as Islam was lifted from them and as guidance was lifted from them because they fought against Muhammad and the family of Muhammad. And so today, nothing remains of Islam. And today, the most important tenet of Islam, which is its true jewel, which is the supremacy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that nobody has the right to appoint a leader except for God. And that Islam means submission. And submission means to the rightful heir who is appointed by God, and that is the family of Muhammad, the selected imams and mahdis, those who were mentioned in the will of the Prophet Muhammad It is the will of the Prophet Muhammad. It is the supremacy of Allah, the fact that nobody can rule except for a caliph who was appointed by Muhammad and the family of Muhammad, that the, you never hear any of the scholars calling towards, because if they did call towards that, 
that would be the end of their mission, the end of their job, the end of their rule, and the end of their lives, yes. as they know. Thank you for joining me, Muhammad. And uh, inshallah, this episode was beneficial in identifying and showing who the true um, enemies of Islam are in this day and age, and that is the non-working scholars, uh, and they are the enemies of, and how they're the enemies of Imam al-Mahdi and the enemies of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad in the same way and upon the same sunnah that uh, the previous prophets and messengers came with. They are the ones who fight the hujjah just like the rabbis and the Pharisees. They fought Jesus and the scholars of Judaism and Christianity. They fought Muhammad and the priests of the temple uh, fought against Abraham and the, and the priests of Ramses fought against Moses and, and Balaam ibn Wawra, the non-working scholar who went forward to curse against uh, Moses, we always find that the enemies of those who are appointed by God are men who are wearing the costumes of, of representatives of God and claiming to speak in his name in order that they may tarnish the reputation and misguide the, the masses and lead them astray from he who is appointed by God. And the same thing is happening in this day and age. And uh, all of the scholars and jurisprudence who do not call towards the Mahdi and the Qa'im in the time of the Mahdi and the Qa'im are cursed on the tongues of Muhammad and the family of Muhammad And it is obligatory that a believer declares himself innocent of them and doesn't listen to them uh, anymore. Poverty could be solved in the Middle East and North Africa alone from ridding itself from all of these scholars and taking uh, their, uh, their salaries and spreading it amongst the poor. And indeed, if they really were representatives of God, they would have done so. And if that Kaaba and the Masjid al-Haram, the holy sanctuary, was indeed a sanctuary for Muslims, then the Muslims would have been able to seek refuge in it as they were fleeing uh, the wars and the horrors of ISIS in Syria um, or fleeing from the horrors of war in Libya or, or in, in Sudan or any of these countries. But instead, you see that the Muslims are forced to flee to uh, other places uh, like Germany and France and uh, the United Kingdom and America. Uh, if the Muslims really had a God who was present inside of the Kaaba, then they would have went towards their God, but they don't believe that their God is there. Uh, and, and for that reason, they, they fled far away from there. And they were received by people that have nothing to do with Islam and yet are closer to Islam than the people who claim to be Muslims who uh, live in the Middle East. So, Lanatullah upon all of the tyrants and Lanatullah upon all of the non working scholars. And thank you for joining me. And God bless you, Muhammad Hassan. And uh, we'll see you, inshallah, in another episode. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much.